Remember, freedom is a gift from God. Choose to accept it, guard it, nourish it, share it with your loved ones. Don't let anyone take it from you. Choose to be free. Learn how to choose freedom with your host, Dr. Baruch Platner. You know, my friends, um, one of the most interesting acquaintances I had uh, when I was living back in Israel was uh, a guy by the name of um, Sasha or Alexander Yakir. And uh, this guy, he repatriated to Israel from, um, you know, what remained of the Soviet Union in uh, the early 90s, uh, together with, I guess, uh, a million other people, some more Jewish than others. Well, this particular one, or this particular guy, uh, Mr. Yakir, uh, he was uh, totally Jewish and... Um, in fact, had an interesting uh, history. He was, or is, the grandson of uh, a very important personage in uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, though perhaps not one of the better known ones to people who, you know, uh, have only a casual acquaintance with the uh, Soviet, uh, with the Bolshevik Revolution and with the uh, Russian Civil War that followed in its uh, footsteps. Uh, his grandfather, uh, his name was Yona, uh, like Jonah, but Yona Yakir. And you can actually uh, type it in into Wikipedia, and I think he, I believe he does have a page there. It's Y-O-N-A-H for the first name and Y-A-K-I-R for the last name, Yona Yakir. Yakir, actually, it's a, a um, very old Hebrew uh, word that means somebody who is beloved or dear. And even in that, this family is rather unusual because most of our Jewish families have uh, kind of made up German names, like even my name, Plettner, or, you know, Goldfarb, or something like that, you know, Epstein. It's rare that we actually have these old Hebrew names, and that usually means that the family is quite, um, as they say, an old and established one, and maybe belongs to a kind of a uh, unofficial Jewish nobility. Well, anyway, this guy Yona Yakir, he was a committed Bolshevik, and fought, and he commanded a division of the Red Army during the uh, Russian Civil War, and uh, he was particularly known or well-known, I guess you could say notorious, for or infamous for uh, being particularly cruel to uh, Russian peasants, well-to-do peasants who were called kulaks. In other words, these were peasants who actually owned, you know, their land, who were productive, who, you know, in America today we would, we would call them, you know, A1 citizens. They were prudent with their money, they were productive, they owned land, they knew what to do with that land, they, they provided employment to other people less enterprising and perhaps less fortunate than they themselves were. Well, the Bolsheviks, of course, saw in them, and rightly so, 
uh, a very conservative traditional element and therefore an element that would be opposed to the Bolshevik revolution, to the farm collectivization that substantially uh, confiscated all the lands from uh, the peasantry and uh, formed and, and, and gave it to the government and form, formed these uh, entities known as kolkhoz. Kolkhoz is a bureaucratic mashup of two words, kolektivne chazaistva. Kolektivne means collective and chazaistva means like a farm or a, yeah, I guess something like that, husbandry. So this kolkhoz is a kind of a collective husbandry or a collective farm. And the idea was that, uh, you know, the land belonged to the, to the state, but some, you know, farmers would band together in this kolkhoz and they would be farming it, you know, um, out of joy. And this, of course, this was a, the, the farmers resisted it very, very strongly. Uh, perhaps I should, you know, mention that during the Civil War, and one of the reasons the Bolsheviks won it, uh, the Reds won uh, and the Whites lost, was that uh, the Bolsheviks made more convincing promises to the peasantry that they would keep their lands and even get more lands. And this, this had to do with uh, some arrangements about uh, Russia's vast uh, agricultural lands that were made uh, after the serfs were were uh, released and the serfdom was f terminated in, in Russia around the same time as the American Civil War in the 1860s. Uh, and this is beyond the scope of this program. But uh, the Russian peasants were kind of uh, sometimes long-term renters or leaseholders of their lands uh, rather than uh, straight-up owners of them. And what the Bolsheviks did was they promised them totally spuriously uh, in other words, they lied, like all Bolsheviks lie, like the American Bolsheviks are lying to you now. Uh, they promised uh, that they would um, uh, give those lands to the peasants in perpetuity. Uh, and once they won the civil war, of course, the Bolsheviks did nothing of the kind. And in fact, uh, because agriculture was totally destroyed in Russia, what Stalin started doing in the second half of the 20s after Lenin was... Uh, after Lenin died or was killed, however you murdered, however you want to look at it, um, he started taking away lands from the peasants, even the lands that they were kind of renting on this long-term basis. And he went through this process of collectivization and also confiscation of anything that could be eaten because Stalin wanted to feed the cities where, there were, where the factory workers were. He needed food for the production of military goods, in other words, of armaments. Uh, and he didn't care one bit if all the peasants starved to death, and many did, millions. Especially in Ukraine, it's known as the Golodomor. Anyway, so of course these uh, Russian peasants didn't want to part with their um, food because that's how their family could survive the winter and so on. So they hid their grain supplies in the forests, under the floorboards, they took the cow and tied her in a tree somewhere, all kind of stuff. And it was uh, the role of people like that Yona Yakir uh, and, and, and the troops under their commands to go around and um, uh, confiscate at gunpoint uh, those supplies without which those peasants would, 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 would die of starvation. 
and uh, that was a very brutal process. It was a, there's no other way to describe it other than crime against humanity. And uh, many of the participants in it were Jewish in, in, in Russia. Um, now, most of the Jews who participated in that uh, um, criminal activity on a vast scale were uh, more so ideologues. In other words, they were like um, politruks. Politruks is another mashup word, politicheski rukovoditel. Politicheski means political and rukovoditel means something like manager. So these were people whose job it was to explain the, to the people who were committing the war, crime, the war crimes, again, in other words, shooting innocent people, why shooting these innocent people was the righteous thing to do. In other words, they were propagandists of the worst kind. Ah, but, so the Jews that actually, you know, the, 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 in terms of doing the shooting, there were not that many Jews that were involved in it. Most of them were involved in the no less egregious part, which was uh, kind of whitewashing these crimes, you know, washing the blood off of the hands of other uh, Gentiles who were actually pulling the trigger. Well, not so with Mr. Yonah Yakir. He put his, uh, uh, you know, um, immense talents of military leadership and organization towards actually himself shooting innocent people, men, women, children, old people, young people, babies, whoever, and those he didn't shoot, he, he basically... Um, he basically committed to uh, death uh, in, uh, from starvation. So uh, he, this Yonah Akir, was a full-fledged war criminal, uh, a person who engaged in genocide. Uh, he would have, uh, even though Jewish, he would have made any Nazi proud. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is that, um, now I, I should also mention that um, uh, he didn't live very very much longer after that. In 1937, Stalin knew that he was faced by a cadre of, in other words, he had under him a cadre of people, many of them Jewish, who were substantially war criminals and utterly compromised. But also, in doing all in doing uh, Stalin's bidding and um, engaging in this. Uh, massive genocide in, in the Russian, Ukrainian, so on countryside, they became quite powerful. And Stalin didn't want that. So in 1937, he engaged uh, on the famous Red Terror and uh, Purge. And Yone Akir uh, was somebody who did not escape it. He was shot in the back of his, tried by some Troika, which is like three people who tried uh, hundreds in one day with a kind of mock trials, field trials. So he was tried uh, and um, convicted and, and sentenced to death all in one go and shot in the back of his head and, and that was the end of that. His wife was uh, sent to some gulag and I guess his children somehow survived, or at least one of them because I knew his grandson. So uh, why am I telling you all of this? Uh, the reason I'm telling you all of this is because um, perhaps uh, it, is a, it is as good a time as any now to investigate the role of Jews, the Jews are, have played in the uh, Russian Bolshevik Revolution and are playing now in the American Bolshevik Revolution that is 
unfolding in front of our very eyes and, and, and the quite possibly upcoming American Civil War, and even though it appears that it may have substantially started. And, you know, uh, on this show, it's, it's a difficult show for me to make because uh, I know that I'm skating close to the line of being accused of being racist and uh, every other thing. And uh, sometimes perhaps I cross the line, but um, I do it with a purpose. And the purpose is um, to offer people a way of unshackling themselves from these shackles of political correctness and of having uh, a, a skin that is too thin. In other words, being too easily preyed upon by people who call them some names like racist, whatever, like, you know, for example, me growing up in Russia, where I experienced a lot of direct uh, bigotry, anti-Semitism against me, and then I came to Israel, and my classmates in, 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 in class, because I had a funny accent and didn't speak Hebrew very well, you know, I, I experienced some bigotry against me, not, not quite as bad, but still, uh, by, you know, native Israeli Jews who spoke perfect Hebrew, they were more tanned, you know, and they had more money than my parents had, and so on. So, you know, you always there's always going to be somebody that's not going to like you for this or that reason, and there's no reason why you should internalize that and, and, and become, every, you know, constantly offended or whatever. It's a good idea to learn to give back, uh, you know, to, 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 to be able to dish it out just as much as people are, you know, are, are dishing, dishing stuff at you. You can dish it back to them. But, you know, all of this is on the surface. No need to get insulted personally. And that's one way to choose to be free, and it's a very important one. So I, um, even though I do have to walk a certain line with what I say on this show, uh, I kind of allow myself, as long as the powers that be allow me, to come close to that line. And I think I'm going to do this today, but uh, in this show, uh, but where it comes to Jews. And even though there are plenty of Jews who are all also anti-Semites, in other words, self-hating Jews, all the self-hating Jews are found on the, on the deep left progressive side of the spectrum, which, believe me, this is not where I am politically. So I am not a self-hating Jew. I am not an anti-Semite. I don't hate Jews. In fact, I don't hate any particular uh, ethnic, religious, or um, race group. Uh, so if, 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 I, if, if I'm accused of that, then so be it. The truth is different. But uh, let's look at um, what role Jews played in the, in the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. The Bolshevik Revolution in Russia was substantially a revolution against the Russian, not Russian in the extended sense of the word, but Russian in the more pure sense of the word. In other words, ethnically Russian elites. The Russian people, has, like any other people, has been long split into the elites and everybody else. The Russian elites were ethnic Russians who were quite westernized in their ways and looked towards Western Europe as their kind of guiding light. But the Russian Empire included a lot of other ethnicities, among them Jews, uh, Georgians, uh, various other nations of the Caucasus, um, 
even Estonians, people from the Baltics, uh, and so on and so on. And then they had the Ukrainians, of course, and, and so on. And then they had the vast Russian lower classes, which were kind of uh, more uh, Asiatic, more oriented towards kind of the um, Asian, perhaps even Chinese way of looking at things than the Western way of, of doing things that their own, um, you know, co-ethnic co elites were, were used to. And so the Russian, you know, the, Russia was ruled by these Western-oriented elites for many centuries until 1917. And the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, the following two-year or three-year civil war, uh, ended that rule by the Western-oriented Russian elites and ushered in a totally different period in Russian history. So when we come back uh, in the next segment, we'll examine unflinchingly the role that Jews had in that Bolshevik uh, revolution in Russia and the role that Jews are having uh, in, the, in the Bolshevik revolution that's now upon us in America. So stay tuned for that. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. As we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. Well, should it news deliver truth and inspire us to reach higher? With blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to the show, folks. So as I promised, you will uh, just delve right in into the rather tragic and unusual story of how Russian Jews um, ushered in or helped usher in the destruction of Russia, which was the the Russian Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. Um, Jews uh, in Russia had a very long history, um, and uh, in the Russian Empire, I should say. Uh, but the the part of history that relates directly to to their engagement in uh, the events, the tra tragic events of 1917, of that fateful year for Russia, and maybe for the world, has to do, goes, goes back to Catherine the Great. C Catherine um, was a very successful Russian empress, except she was 100% German. She was a German princess uh, who came to Russia to marry a weak, kind of a weakling uh, inheritor to Peter the Great's throne, and uh, she actually had him Soon, soon after they were married, she had him arrested and executed by the Russian um, live guards, the elite regiment, because she kind of fostered a good relations with them and they kind of hated him. Anyway, that's a, another story. But so this German girl came to power in Russia and became uh, one of the most successful Russian rulers of all times, expanded the Russian Empire greatly. We're talking about 
uh, the 18th century. She was a contemporary of the American Revolution. In fact, she was asked by the Brits to provide um, kind of hired guns, you know, Russian troops to defend um, to defend uh, the the British colonies in North America against the American revolutionaries, American patriots. She refused to do that, even though she was far from being a revolutionary herself. She hated the French Revolution, which also happened during her reign. But she was also a progressive uh, of sorts. She corresponded widely with Voltaire and so on. Anyway, so she was faced with this uh, problem, I guess you could call it, of a very large Jewish population in the western and southwestern parts of her empire, parts that she was, uh, some of which were newly acquired by her at the expense of Poland and the Ottoman Empire. So we're talking about places like Western Ukraine, uh, Moldavia, today's Romania, uh, and so on. And so on. So um, Catherine, what she did, um, she thought that these Jews, uh, if they were allowed to uh, go anywhere they wanted within her empire, for example, if they were allowed to, to come to the twin capitals, um, St. Petersburg and Moscow, that would be disruptive uh, to how Russia was um, managed. Uh, and so she created something called the, the Pale of Settlement. In other words, a kind of imaginary line, substantially to the west of which Jews could live, but they could not live, they could not cross it to the east, towards uh, St. Petersburg, Moscow, and um, kind of Russia proper. So that created a situation where Jews were uh, concentrated in on the western side of that line, again in places like western Ukraine, what today, today is parts of Poland, eastern Poland, Moldavia, Romania, and so on. Belarus as well. So, um, uh, and this Pale of Settlement uh, persisted for uh, from the late 1700s to kind of uh, late uh, 1800s, uh, where it was lifted. And as it was lifted, um, uh, together uh, around the same time in the 1860s, when, where the serf, uh, serfdom was ended in Russia by Tsar Alexander II. Um, so what happened was uh, many of these Jews uh, decided to get some uh, kind of uh, Western-style education. In other words, rather than study the Torah and the Talmud, study something like law and medicine and engineering. And uh, they started going at first to some field uh, universities in field towns, and then later in, in universities in Kiev and Moscow and St. Petersburg, major cities. And so by the time uh, 1900, the new century, the 20th century came along, um, there were many Jews, not most, but many, who were educated and uh, fairly wealthy and enjoyed positions um, of uh, some power within the Russian Empire. Uh, however, they were never really kind of assimilated, even though they tried the society, the Russian society, which was still quite uh, Greek Orthodox in terms of its religion and so on, they, they were not really accepted. And um, they carried with them or within them this memory of this humiliation of uh, being forced to live beyond the pale, beyond the pale of settlement. And um, 
many of them had quite progressive, uh, what today would be called the leftist or communist views. Uh, one of the one of those people was, for example, uh, Mr. Trotsky, whose real name was Bronstein, and also Sverdlov, a, a, a guy who uh, was one of the biggest uh, Bolshevik uh, leaders, and and after whose name major um, areas of Russia to this day are called. Uh, his real name I forget now, but it was totally Jewish. I should have looked it up. But you can if you go to Sverdlov in, in, in uh, Wikipedia or anywhere else. Um, uh, one of the um, greatest, um, how should I say, sadists of the KGB predecessor, the NKVD, NKVD, his name was Yagoda, but Yagoda is actually a Russified pronunciation of Yehuda, which means substantially Judah. So it was a, a Jewish guy by the last name of you know, Judah. So, and, and there's so many other examples. Uh, so what happened was uh, that uh, these influential, educated Russian Jews, the kind of the Russian Jewish elites, uh, joined forces with other elements. Uh, for example, Stalin was a Georgian, not Russian. Uh, there were Pol uh, Polish people there as well and all kinds of elements who were united substantially by their hatred of the Russian, ethnically Russian, Christian, westward-looking elites. And uh, Lenin himself was a quarter Jewish and a quarter Kalmyk, which is Mongo Mongolian, and half uh, ethnic Russian. So... Um, you know, his real name was Ulyanov, which is a Russian name, but uh, his, his, on his mother's side, he was uh, half Jewish. His mother was half Jewish. Uh, and on his father's side, he was half Mongolian. So anyway, uh, he, uh, these people, this gang came together in Russia and substantially upended that country. And after that, it could never recover because they substantially eliminated, expelled, slaughtered its entire elite. And to this day, there is no recovery from such a, a shock. Now, it's easy to understand the motive of revenge. And to me, there is no doubt that Russian Jews felt justified to some degree in conducting this genocide against uh, peasants, especially Ukrainian peasants, because they have had centuries of blood, bloody history with those peasants. Those peasants in the years, uh, in the decades, uh, especially in the decades running up to the Russian Revolution, uh, um, engaged in horrible pogroms and in kind of mini-genocides against their Jewish neighbors. Um, in the early 18th century, much earlier than what I'm talking about, there was a guy by the name of Bogdan Khmelnytsky, a kind of Ukrainian nationalist who was also a genocidal crusader against the Ukrainian Jews. So in other words, Ukrainian Jews, uh, Polish Jews, Jews from that region in the Russian Empire had many reasons to feel um, ill-disposed 
towards their neighbors. And when they could, could be on the trigger side rather than the barrel side of the gun, they did not hesitate to pull the trigger. And that's what Yona Yakir did. Not to justify his actions, but to kind of explain where they came from. Ideologically, though, uh, there were Jews who in Russia uh, who were very inclined towards the progressive worldview because of something that a kind of a, a stream within Judaism. So naturally, Judaism is quite isolationist. Uh, we don't proselytize. We don't want people to join us. It's difficult to, to convert to Judaism properly. Uh, we, unlike Christians we or Muslims, we do not want any uh, newcomers into our midst. Uh, but there is a kind of a, a mystical, um, somewhat fringe element in Judaism called the Kabbalah. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, and within that uh, stream, uh, Jewish rabbis got to ask themselves why the world was so uh, screwed up, and especially for Jews. And they started coming up with all kinds of answers, for example, that the world was created by God perfectly, as a perfect set of vessels. But then these vessels were broken up, and the world could not be perfect again until these vessels could be repaired. That's the concept of tikkun olam, literally repairing the world. Tikkun is repairing and olam is world. And so um, many of these Jews back then in Russia 100 years ago and in America today, surprisingly enough. Now, what you have to understand that these Jews in Russia and the American Jews today are blood brothers. We are all Ashkenazi Jews. We come from the exact same stock. The American Jews today, the, the Bernsteins, the Epsteins, the Feinsteins, and every other Stein, the, the Bergs, the Farbs, you name it. They all come from that exact beyond the pale area that I described to you earlier. Except they left, their families left uh, that region of the world for America sometime in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, so they share the same, not only DNA, but also in many ways and often the same kind of outlook. And this outlook of fixing the world, looking at the world as something broken that needs to be fixed, not as a utopian end of day kind of deal, but right now, it needs to be fixed right now. That is exceedingly dangerous idea that is um, uh, put forward by communist Bolshevik progressives. And uh, so the motivation to do that uh, was the same 100 years ago in Russia as it is today in America. And the reason that this uh, type of ideology is so dangerous is because uh, it, it kind of assumes that the tasks, the task of putting the world back together, of tikkun olam, of fixing the world, there are two things that make it dangerous. One is that they see this task as a communal task. Most Jews, maybe, including myself, including yours truly here, believe that it, on, a, on a personal level it's a good idea. Be kind. Be kind. Personally. Help your neighbor. 
on a small scale, maybe help your community just around your school, your grocery shop, your green grocers, whatever. That to me is what Tikkun Olam is all about. But then there is these other people, these Bolshevik Jews, who see Tikkun Olam as something on a much grander scale. They see Tikkun Olam as uh, fixing the world, as in fixing a whole empire, be it Russia or be it the United States. And they don't take prisoners on their way of doing so. In other words, they use these expressions like you have to break eggs to make an omelet. You know, when you cut wood, chips fly, right? It has to be destroyed before it can be rebuilt. So what we're seeing now in Portland are echoes of that, right? They're trying to destroy that beautiful city. In fact, in fact they probably have succeeded in it already in order to build something different. And they have this nihilistic rabbit hole philosophy, and I'm talking now about some very influential American Jews, as well as their uh, long ago cousins in Russia. They have this uh, um, kind of philosophy where perfection is the goal. And that's the third part that makes it so dangerous. Because it's okay to incrementally better, and America has given the most people ever uh, a way of living uh, in a way that's prosperous and free. But see, these maniacs, <laughs> they don't stop at uh, most. They want everybody. So in other words, and this is there's echoes of that in you know what we were hearing today about the suburbs. You know, President Trump says, you suburban folks should rest easy because I'm go I removed this uh, Obama-era policy of putting up some, that each suburb has to put up some low-income housing right in it, right? Which would destroy property value and so on. So, um, you know, America was has done the best job that any other country has ever done in helping most people, but most is not enough for this for these lunatics, right? For the Bolshevik progressives. And especially maybe for the for the Jewish Bolshevik progressive, because they want perfection. The idea there is to to rebuild those perfect vessels. And even if one piece is, piece is missing, it's not perfect. So you can have 99.9% population living a, a, a wonderful, rewarding life, as long as there is 0.1% that for whatever reason, including their own inability or, or, or lack of desire to live such a life, does not enjoy it, then it's not, none of it is good enough. And so we have to break it again. If we build this vessel up to its 99.9% .9 perfection, there is a tiny little piece is missing, right? Well, in these people's view, we have to take a sledgehammer to that 99.99% perfect vessel, break it down into a gazillion pieces so we can start the rebuilding process yet again. And who's to guarantee us that next time it's going to be perfect? It's going to be even better than before. There's no guarantee. In fact, it's probably going to be less good, but it doesn't bother them. It's not that they deny this, they understand it, but they say, you know what? We're going to try as many times as it takes, ad infinitum, we don't care how many millions of people will die 
We don't care the kind of environmental destruction will be wrought. None of this matters to us. We will try for as many times as it takes to make that vessel 100% pure, just as God had made it. And what the and, and the reason that these people who attempt it is are atheists is because somebody who is re religious would tell you that we humans cannot do what God has done. We cannot make perfection, only He can. And we will touch more on that in the next segment. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio. On our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. So. <laughs> It's time that we address this question that uh, many people ask. Why are American Jews in their majority, vast majority, maybe 70%, why are they so liberal? And that's a fair question, and I'll go even beyond that. If you look at American Jews as a whole, and you remove uh, from, um, from them, from that uh, number, from that number, uh, American Jews who are... Um, ultra-Orthodox, in other words, what, 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 what people call Hasidic, even though that's not a good name for them. Uh, but those who are, let's say, visibly Jewish, uh, with their dress and so on, and then you maybe remove from them Israeli expats, of whom there are uh, a couple hundred thousand anyway, some, some say even up to half a million in places like LA, Boston, Miami. What remains, if you look at the American that your typical American secular Jew, uh, usually the Reformed, if, if there's any religion there at all, it's kind of the Reformed stream, which is Judaism light, light. Um, well, these Jews, these Ashkenazi Jews, whose ancestors came to America, say, between 1880 and 1920, uh, I think the number of them that are who vote Democrat and who are progressives is much higher than 70%. It may be approaching more closely 90% or so. And the question is, why? And also, 
since President Trump is so is so pro-Israeli and pro-Zionist, the more more so than any uh, previous president, really by by far, and uh, as a corollary to that, the the Democratic Party now in America is becoming uh, rapidly anti-Semitic, and allowing within its ranks the presence of uh, Congress uh, uh, Congress people like Rashida Tlaib, uh, rank anti-Semite of Palestinian descent, or Ilhan Omar, who is you know her rival in terms of genocidal anti-Semitism and anti-Israeli attitude, anti-Israeli attitudes, who is uh, from Somalia. Um, these views, these rapidly anti-Semitic views are becoming part of the progressive discourse in the West, uh, in Britain, in America, and everywhere else. And yet, these American secular Jews uh, vote for that, and they call Trump racist, which, uh, or anti-Semitic, which of course is utter nonsense. Trump uh, has dealt with Jews his entire life, and there was never any whiff of him disliking Jews or anything of that nature. He's from New York. So he dealt with Jews, believe me, more than pretty much anyone, anyone else outside of Israel. So um, why, why, why? Why is that, is that happening? Um, and the reason has to do with what we uh, mentioned previously. Jews are, these secular Jews in America are exceedingly advantaged, not because their uh, skin color is white or anything like that, but because uh, they are the product of tight-knit communities of strong family values, even if they themselves don't now share them. They are still the product of that. They're the product of strong family values, of nuclear families, mother, father, two kids, who invested everything in their children's education, who were from, you know, from, since they were toddlers, they were challenged to do their best to rise up to their um, full potential in kindergarten, in elementary school, in high school, in university, in professional school, and so on. And because of that, because they were so well, so, so advantaged, and not for one generation, but for several, uh, and because they had very hardworking parents who invested everything in their education, they became uh, kind of the, they started occupying the elite positions in American society and feeling so privileged, they felt like they could espouse these these progressive policies, like for example, stop policing the cities because their wealth and privilege protects them substantially from the uh, consequences of these policies. So we know that, uh, destruction of policing, policing and making American cities, um, city centers into third world, um, you know, uh, assholes, uh, as, as we may say, um, that doesn't affect people who live in luxe buildings or affects them much less, or people who have uh, homes in Westchester County or Litchfield County or, uh, you know, Newton Mass and Brookline and so on. They don't uh, expose themselves to those dangers that other less fortunate expose themselves. And because of that, they feel like they can be progressive. But also, they have that very strong streak of giving back, but not in the right way. 
by fixing those vessels, but not in the right way again. So instead of helping locally, they, they want to rearrange the whole country. And uh, the powers that be that uh, are engaged now in America in this Bolshevik uh, revolution, just like in Russia 100 years ago, Jews are not at the very leadership of that movement, actually. The very leadership of that movement is elsewhere. Maybe George Soros is one, but he's a completely lapsed Jew and a total self-hating Jew, so it's hard for me to assign to him too much Jewishness, even though ethnically he is. His real name is Schwartz. So um, these uh, Jews in America, just like they were in Russia, they occupy the second tier. You could call it the executive tier, uh, meaning they are the ones that execute the top, uh, the wishes of the powers behind the, the throne or behind the revolution. And that is um, true in Russia and it's true in America. In Russia, the Bolshevik revolution was or, uh, organized and funded substantially by Russia's uh, enemy in the First World War, Germany. They funded the whole thing and they hid Lenin uh, when he was in exile and then brought him into Russia in order to uh, commence the final stage of the Bolshevik Revolution. Same thing in America. America's Bolshevik Revolution is guided and funded by America's enemies, substantially by China. However, Jews in America, unfortunately, play a leading role in this revolution at the level just below the top. And they're also quite visible. So if you look at the American media, left-wing media, which is, I guess, pretty much all media, or at least all so-called mainstream media. If you look at uh, the halls of Congress, uh, Senate, and so on, uh, if you look at the top echelons of American business, all of those are populated by Jews uh, in numbers that exceed the Jewish um, uh, portion of the American population at large by factors of 10 or 100. So we're talking about not, you know, two or three times, but orders of magnitude. And of these highly influential Jews, uh, substantially all of them are uh, progressive Bolsheviks and are assisting in the Bolshevik takeover of America. So quite similar to, to what happened in Russia 100 years ago. And this is something that is not going to stop. In other words, um, I don't expect that, that President Trump and his being such a staunch supporter of Israel will convince um, a substantial amount or percentage of American Jews to vote for him uh, uh, in 2020, this year, where they didn't in 2016. There could be some older Jews in uh, places like Boca Raton, in their retirement communities, that may do so because they cringe at how anti-Israeli the Democrats had become. But most American Jews uh, actually dislike Israel precisely because it's an ethno-state. And to them, ethnicity is racist. So this uh, Israel being an ethno-state, having a state religion, i.e. Judaism, um, and having this idea that 
that small strip of land between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean should belong substantially to Jews, well, those ideas sound foreign, dangerous, and malicious to most American Jews, let's face it. And so support for Israel is not something that they cherish. Support for Israel is something that makes them less rather than more inclined to vote for President Trump this year. So I doubt that there's going to be any movement in the Jewish community from uh, to, towards Trump. It could be, it could be that some Jewish money will stay away because, uh, because again, of how odiously not only anti-Israeli but even anti-Semitic uh, the Democratic Party had become, but um, don't expect any change of heart among, uh, Amer among the, the, the bulk of American Jewry. And in any case, American Jews are so few in number that, and they live in those non, in those full democratic states, maybe outside of Florida, where they wield little direct electoral uh, influence. Most of the electoral influence that is wielded by Jews is through their money and uh, through their um, over-representation in American politics, academia, law, and, um, and commerce. And these Jews are going to be 100% full-on on the Bolshevik side. And that's just a fact. And it's a fact that has a strong foundation in history. So, uh, you know, uh, what I would uh, recommend to you, my friends, is that you kind of uh, abandon this paradigm that American Jews uh, are voting to, uh, uh, with the interests of Israel uh, in, in their hearts. That's just not true. American Jews vote for those who promised to rebuild those perfect vessels. And the, uh, um, what's happening in America right now is that there are substantially two parties. One party says, you know what, America is great, was great, always, can be made even greater, but incrementally. America will never be perfect. Why? Because nothing can be perfect outside of God. So while we have a lot of work to do, we can never approach the perfection of the Almighty. So, yes, we can gradually improve if there are uh, people in America who are disadvantaged. We should try to do what we can to lift them up if they themselves would be willing to be lifted up. Uh, and uh, that's fine. But we should also recognize that America has always been ever since its inception 244 years ago, the land in which opportunity for everybody, everybody, whites and non-whites and everybody else, was much greater than anywhere, anywhere else in the world. And that includes uh, Jews more than, anyone, more, more than anyone, perhaps. So, you know, what we are saying on our side of the political divide is that Let's keep America as it was while trying to incrementally improve it, just like we have been doing or Americans have been doing for the past 244 years. But what the other party is saying, the, the Bolshevik Democratic Party, is no, 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 America is fundamentally flawed. That's that whole 1619 project. America is, that's the year that the first slave was brought to America, which is more important than 1776, 
when the Declaration of Independence was signed, according to these morons, many of them Jewish, in the New York Times. Too many of them, of them Jewish. So what happens is, well, they say America was born in sin, and that sin is irredeemable. In other words, there is no way of fixing it. It cannot be fixed by any incremental measures. What has to happen, according to the Democrats and their Jewish supporters in America, is to smash it all down. So in other words, in, in this vessel analogy, you can think of the conception of America and then its gradual progress towards a more perfect union as kind of a careful rebuilding of those broken vessels. And here we find ourselves with those vessels substantially rebuilt, but we also understand that we can never rebuild them fully. Well, along come the Bolsheviks in, in American politics, and in other words, the Democrats, and they say, well, that's all for naught. Okay, because 244 years you tried and you haven't reached perfection, and you probably haven't reached perfection because you started with the fundamental sin, be it slavery or be it something else. Now they're pushing slavery. And so what we have to do now is we have to destroy it. Everything that was built for 244 years is not worth a damn, and we have to break it down. We have to smash it, we have to burn it, which is what they're doing in Portland, Seattle, other places. We have to destroy it to the ground, no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. If America gets occupied by China, fine. If the American military is destroyed, fine. If the American cities burn to the ground, fine. If millions die, fine. If, more, if millions more lose their livelihoods, and fine. We don't care. Everything has to be brought, uh, uh, destroyed, because you know Jefferson owned a few slaves, or Washington did, and so on. It's not worth it. It's all going. It's, it all has to come down. That's what uh, the Democrats. Uh, you know, that's their that's their politics. That's their policy, and that's their ideology. And that's the ideology of most American Jews secular Jews. The ones that you saw, that the ones that you see that are visibly Jewish, actually, that's not their ideology. But the secular ones, that's, you know, that's the ideology that the vast majority of them subscribe to. And so what we, what, where we are, uh, friends, is that we're find the, finding ourselves in America in this fight for survival, as far as our side is concerned, because the other side wants to destroy the, the re rebuilding part is not what they're good at, and that's not what they're focused on. What they're focused on right now is destruction. And they've already destroyed race relations in America. They destroyed um, much of, in the past just few months, they destroyed much of America's wealth, their uh, reaction to the coronavirus, which I was on board was with a two-week hiatus so that stuff could be figured out. But then, of course, it became a tool to destroy America. And just this last quarter, America's GDP shrank by nearly 10%, putting it uh, on, on track to shrink, to shrink uh, annualized rate of more than 30%, more than a third. So they're successfully destroying America. And they have to be stopped or America will be destroyed. Now, I know, and that's probably the right thing to do, is that most Americans on our side are focused on saving America in or at the ballot box on November 3rd. And, and I certainly encourage you to do that. Vote 
straight Republican ticket. If you have to hold your nose, hold it, whatever, but do it. Because that's the best chance to avoid major bloodshed in America. However, that bloodshed may yet come. And that's something we have to be prepared for. So, uh, what I recommend to you, my friends, is that you do prepare for those outcomes that are not necessarily what we're all praying for. Because that's the right thing to do. Thank you for listening and uh, see you next time. Choose to be free.